Thank you, Travis. In light of the song that Ruth Ann sang on God's grace, in light of the song we sang as a congregation about God's word and being responsive to God's word, I trust it's your desire and your passion to be one who lives in light of scripture. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider a portion of Mark's gospel this morning, we want to be a people who hear with the mindset, with the will to apply, to live in sensitivity to Christ, who is our life. We want to be those that are known for being obedient. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? That is, the Jesus of the Bible. Why are you following Jesus? To get to heaven? What you hope he will do for you? Because of who he is in terms of his character, his being, and his identity. Why should you listen this morning to better understand the Jesus of the Bible, to remain faithful to Jesus in the tough times of life? If they haven't already come, they'll come somewhere along the line, and to remain focused also on Christ in the good times of life, because we tend to drift in the good times also. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, reading together verses 1 through 11. Mark chapter 11, reading verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and we will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread out their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem went into the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus has already spoken to the twelve three times concerning his coming death. Jerusalem is where it would all take place, but before the suffering comes, there's some calm, there's some recognition, and there's some teaching. 
And I want you to keep in mind as we discuss Mark that Mark emphasizes very, very strongly the identity, the character, the being of Jesus. The fact that he is unique. The fact that he is the son of God. The fact that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The fact that Christ is sensitive to God's spirit. The fact that Jesus is able to resist Satan. This character, this being, this identity of Jesus is expressed in Mark as Jesus proclaims the good news, as Jesus taught with authority, (coughs) as Jesus quieted and cast out an evil spirit, as he healed Peter's mother-in-law, as he healed various diseases and drove out demons, as he prayed as he preached in the synagogue and drove out more demons, as he healed a man with leprosy. And we could go on explaining in the, to this point in Mark's gospel all that Christ had done, demonstrating that he is unique, demonstrating that he is the Son of God. To set the stage for the triumphal entry, James Edwards says, and I quote, Mark places the passion narratives of chapters 11 through 16 in the context of Easter week. This means that fully one-third of Mark's gospel is set during the last seven days of the life of Jesus. The disproportionate emphasis on this brief time period signals the importance of the final week in Jerusalem for an understanding of Jesus' mission and purpose. The passion narrative in chapters 11 through 16 resume the fast pace of the first three chapters of the gospel. Once Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, to which he has been on the way since chapter 8 and verse 27, events quickly transpire to complete the mission and the revelation of Jesus Christ. During the final journey of Jesus, he ministered in at least 35 different localities. Timing the journey so that he would end up in Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus had absenced himself from the previous three Passovers, but now attending this Passover. He's in Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Expectations are running high because he had raised Lazarus from the dead, John 11. The news has spread around Jerusalem that Jesus is on the scene. The number observing the people with him has radically increased. Most recently, as he journeys to the Passover, he healed blind Bartimaeus in Jerusalem. The pilgrims moving with him and before him are very enthusiastic, spreading the news about Christ. And as we move into this chapter, we find verses 1 through 11, the triumphal entry. Then we find that Jesus attacks the temple, basically saying the temple worship is not valid. And he teaches on faith. And that ties in with the 
fig tree that withered. And then at the end of chapter 11, his authority is questioned. Mark 11 begins a unit of thought that extends through chapter 13. And the theme of these chapters is the conflict that Jesus had with and the rejection of the temple in Jerusalem, including the religious system and the leadership center there. Mark 11, 12, and 13, the theme is Jesus' conflict with and rejection of the temple in Jerusalem, including the religious system and the leadership center there. Because he himself is coming. And from his initial visit in the temple, we find that the breach between Jesus and the temple is so very evident. He enters Jerusalem triumphantly, but is not received in the temple with triumphant. The indifference he initially received quickly turns to opposition in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? The religious leaders ask, and who gave you authority to do this? And ultimately, it leads to his death. So Jesus and the crowd with him are approaching Jerusalem. Come to Bethpage and Bethany. And we find the Mount of Olives is also mentioned. So Jesus had been in... uh, Jericho, travel from Jericho, coming to Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is mentioned. Bethany is mentioned. Bethpage is mentioned. The Mount of Olives rises some 2,600 feet above sea level, some 300 feet higher than Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives runs north and south on the eastern side of Jerusalem. In David's time, the Mount of Olives was a place of worship, 2 Samuel 15, 32. At the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from Jerusalem and settling on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives would be the site of the final judgment as the rabbis and Josephus associated it with the coming of the Messiah. Mark, who seldom mentions, mentions places, does mention the Mount of Olives. So Jesus coming at this point in time from Bethany into Jerusalem. And what does Jesus do? The text clearly says in verse 2 of Mark 11, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him. The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. As in the past, we find that Jesus is involving the twelve in ministry. He says to two of the disciples, you know, go to the village get this colt and bring it to me and tells them how to respond if they're asked. 
and they obey, they go. They find the code in verse 4, and they're asked, what are you doing? I'm tying that coat, and they respond. Christ knew what was going to transpire, told him what to do, even though he was not there personally. He said, you will find the colt. I want you to notice that in all of this, we observe Jesus in his painstaking premeditation. He or the Father has carefully ordered everything. The day, the hour were selected from eternity with a countdown with perfection. This triumphal entry on the first day of the week would precipitate his death on Good Friday, his rest in the grave, and his triumphant resurrection on the first day of the week. Not only is the time of his entry, but the mode as well, a previously unridden donkey was carefully chosen. And he's going public. And most of his life had been in private. He was not promoting himself. But here he's going public, promoting his ministry. Why the choice of a donkey? Because 500 years before, Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on the foe of a donkey. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foe of a donkey. Now I emphasize some 500 years before this was predicted and it's being fulfilled in completion. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy Riding a donkey, a colt, on which no one had ever ridden. And the reason this was being done is because that in biblical culture, if something sacred is being done, it would be done with an animal on which no one had ever ridden. And keep in mind that we're dealing with someone sacred here. We're dealing with someone who is not ordinary. We're dealing with the very Son of God. In addition... Jesus told his disciples they would find the colt tied, tethered in Bethpage. This points to the prophetic utterance in Genesis 49, 10 and 11. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor will the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. The triumphal entry. We find that much is happening in terms of prophecy being fulfilled. Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, wants us to see a connection. By riding on a donkey, he fulfilled Zechariah 9.9. And also, Jacob's prophecy to Judah 
in Genesis. We're dealing here with someone who is unique because he's the son of God. He is fulfilling prophecy that has been made hundreds of years earlier. It's very, very important. As I will come at in just a little while. What happens, verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their <clears throat> cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks in the road while others spread branches they cut in the fields. And what are they crying? They're quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The growing crowd is honoring Christ, blessing him if you speak, honoring him, quoting again from Psalm, sharing what has been stated about the Christ in Psalms. This saying of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and so on, was used by pilgrims at times, but here it fits Jesus very, very well. The other gospel accounts picture this as a time of joy. The other gospel accounts talk about the fact that they took palm, palm branches. Mark just says spread branches as they go out to meet him shouting Hosanna. The palm branches represented their nationalistic desire to be delivered. For when Simon Maccabeus delivered Jerusalem 150 years earlier, it was celebrated with praise, with palm branches and musical instruments. The palms were the symbol of the second Maccabean revolt. Hosanna was a customary religious greeting at the Passover. But on the lips of the fervent crowd, it was the anticipatory cry, which literally means save. Save us. The people are repeating prophetically over and over and over again that Jesus was the deliverer. Save us. Save us. Not even the disciples understood the full import of what was being said. It was only after his death and resurrection that they would grasp that. Now, if you look in your Bible, at the beginning of chapter 11, there's a note, the triumphal entry. And as you contrast the Gospels, the Gospels portray the tri triumphal entry in a different way. This text is traditionally called the triumphal entry. And that's appropriate as you look in Mark 2, or 21, I'm sorry, Matthew 21, 1 through 11, and John 12, 12 through 19. But not for Mark. The whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? In Matthew 21, 10. Luke reports that the city was so electrified that the stones were ready to cry out in 1940. But Mark's account is 
noteworthy for what doesn't happen. The whole scene comes to nothing. Notice in verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. No mention of the crowd with him. No mention that it's a positive thing. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I think Mark is communicating something in the gospel because of whom he is writing to. He is writing to the Roman believers who are going through persecution. That's who is receiving the gospel of Mark. Persecution, rejection. What's happening with Christ? He goes into Jerusalem, ends up in the temple. There's not a good reception. In fact, the next day, he cast out money changers. But there's not the enthusiasm. His coming in Jerusalem was a big deal. But it dissipates. Seems to be even somewhat unrecognized in the temple. There was a flash of enthusiasm with the triumphal entry. But the daily obedience on the part of that crowd falls by the wayside. The daily commitment to Christ falls by the wayside. And I think Mark, again, is communicating because of who he's writing to, Roman believers. There may have been a flash with the triumphal entry, but it passed. Jesus is committed to long-term obedience and going to the cross, and that's what you as believers in Rome are going through. You're not committed to the flash. You're committed to the person of Jesus Christ. And I think Mark is communicating to them, be faithful. Don't follow Jesus for the flash. Follow him as a lifestyle of obedience. So what's the point of Mark 11? And that should be 1 through 11, not 12 through 26. What's the point of Mark 11, 1 through 11? I think the point is, as the Son of God, Jesus is able to see beyond and is worthy of worship as well as accepting worship from people. And tied in with that, not only is Jesus seen beyond, not only is he worthy of worship, but he is also fulfilling prophecy. Go back to Genesis 49, to Zechariah. We're not dealing with a common ordinary man here. We're dealing with someone that is unique because he is the son of God. And I think that ties in with some applications. Meditate upon. That is, meditate much upon the character, the identity, and the being of Christ. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the Savior. He's the Son of God. Know Him for who He is. In his works. He's not a flash and then gone. He is, I am. Remember what he did in Mark's gospel. 
You can check all the pages of history that you want, and you will not find any prophecy for any of us being born some 500 years before our birth. Or a prophecy as far as what we're going to do in life. But we find in Christ, over 500 years before, there was a prediction made about a cult, about Christ riding on it. And I emphasize very, very strongly that Jesus was not a flash. He has been predicted. His birth is living on this earth, is going to the cross, and is coming from the dead because he's the great I am. He's not a flash and then gone. His triumphal... Triumphal entry was a flash, and then it was gone. The people praised him, and then they part their way. So tied in with that, follow Jesus as a disciple because of who he is. Not merely what he did or will do for you. Come what may, be committed to Christ for who he is. Be committed to him as a person. It will keep you in target when things are difficult and trials come. We're not following Christ because of merely what he will do. Well, I'm going to heaven when I die. That's what Jesus does for me. You might be willing to part with Jesus before life is over if that's the only reason you follow him. You might say, I'm following Jesus because of what he'll do for me. You might be disappointed when you don't get healed or fixed physically. See, we're following Jesus for who he is. So when relational struggles come, do you continue to follow Christ? It may be a marital difficulty. It may be a family difficulty. It may be a work difficulty relationally. Do we still follow Christ? See, we're following him for who he is. Persecution may come. And if you take your stand on the job and in school, at times you may be made made fun of. Do you stand firm? Because you're following Jesus for who he is. See, Jesus never promised to deliver us from persecution. In fact, he said, I'll walk with you through it, and some of you might die for it. Because we're following him. See, the physical trials come, and we don't get fixed. Do we continue to follow him? Christian history has dozens and dozens of examples of people who followed Christ. Then when God didn't fix them physically, they gave up. How about the financial difficulties that come? Well, God didn't really make me what I should be financially, so I'm going to give up following him. No, we're following him as a person, not merely what he will do or what he is coming. And I emphasize that strongly because the crowd just dissipates. But Christ along with the 11, goes to the cross, but the 11 then even part company with him. 
He knew who he was, and he followed through. Beloved, don't follow Christ merely for what he will do for you, but because of who he is. All that appears to be gold, discipleship is not genuine. Just consider the long term. Faith tested shows one is genuine. Now keep in mind again that Mark is writing to the believers in Rome. They're being persecuted. And I think he's writing to encourage them that your faith is being tested. You're being proved to be genuine gold because you're persevering in the midst of death. So Nero's garden is being lit tonight by some people in Rome and the rest of the living or those that will be living after those that would be burned remain faithful. They're not a flash. They're being tried and they're being proved genuine. Peter talks about that, of just remaining faithful. So when you think about the triumphal entry, think about a flash on the part of most people and then they're gone. And that stands in contrast to Jesus, who was pure gold, demonstrating himself to be the Son of God, demonstrating himself to be the I Am. And he remained faithful. So my closing question is, are you committed to Christ because of who he is? So good times come, I'm following Christ. Tough times come, I'm following Christ because he is the son of God, because he is the lamb of God, because he is the great I am. Are you committed to Christ as a person? You never come to faith in him, why don't you come to faith and trust in Christ as Savior? And for those of us who are believers, then follow him because of who he is. And to think about following Christ because of who he is, let's take our hymnals and sing one verse of hymn 400.